Good morning, everybody. Uh, I think we should get going, uh, as the next stop after this session will be lunch. Um, I can't promise the German efficiency uh, of our previous moderator in uh, the main uh, lecture theatre, but we will certainly be finishing by one o'clock. I'm a general practitioner, a local boy from South Oxfordshire, uh, and whilst, as far as I know, I don't have any uh, German uh, genetics, uh, I am renowned in my practice for being the only GP in the practice to finish pretty nearly on time. So I will do my best to do so uh, today. Um, I am a GP, and that's one of the reasons I'm here, but I'm not the only GP in the room. Paul Glasgow joins me on that, and one or two colleagues around here. In the previous sessions, uh, there's been a slightly formulaic approach to what we've said and what we've done. Yes, we have... Uh, an issue which we're here to discuss with my colleagues to my left about evaluation and innovation. And yes, I'm going to get them to do most of the talking because they're the erudite experts that we rely on. But I'm also acutely aware that in the auditorium here, we have other erudite experts. And I would very, very much like, particularly in this sort of gentler setting, to invite you to pop up a hand, because uh, I guess we can manage without running around with microphones. So if you've got something really burning, fine, stick up a hand and I'll see what I can do. If it's of a general nature, keep it till later. But we will be a bit more interactive, I think, than we were able to be in the Mandela Theatre next door. Being a local boy, per se, doesn't actually mean I should moderate a session uh, at this great conference. The reason perhaps I I have been asked to do so is because I'm also the medical director for NHS Oxfordshire. Um, I was intrigued by the slamming, firstly, that John Bell gave the NHS about saying unaffordable, inefficient, etc., etc. And then in the previous session on clinical entrepreneurship, we came in for rather more stick about being bloody hopeless at innovation as well. So uh, that's why I was keeping quiet in those previous sessions. Um, innovation is all around me, both in Oxford, NHS Oxfordshire and as the GP. Change is happening on a daily basis. But without innovation, I probably wouldn't be sitting here in front of you today. Firstly, when I was six weeks old, in this town of city of Oxford, I had septicemia. I was treated with some fairly scary high-dose intravenous antibiotics, and out of a group of ten neonates who got the infection, two of us survived. And I was one of those two, so I sort of feel doubly blessed because I was christened in hospital because I thought I was going to die. But innovation in the use of those antibiotics saved my life, probably. Much more recently, uh, on Christmas Eve, I had a heart attack, completely out of the blue, which just goes to show me how bloody bad we are at predicting who is going to get certain chronic, now long-term conditions. But thanks to innovation, within 10 minutes of being driven into the cardiac care unit in Reading, I had a stent put in. 
Now, I'm by no means back to full battery yet, but that innovation is probably going to make a difference, certainly to the next 10 working years, I fully anticipate and expect to have, supported by the medication, which is now evidence-based, and we'll probably hear a bit more about that side of things. And so whilst it's flattening me dreadfully having beta blockers, actually I'm very grateful for that innovation and for the evidence behind what I'm now taking. So, a little bit more before I move to my colleagues here. As medical director of NHS Oxfordshire, I am a part of that organisation which runs a budget of between 800 and 900 million pounds a year, which I find incredibly scary, but that's what it is. In my little biography, which is rather out of date, I'm afraid, it said something about South Africa, and I recently returned to South Africa to uh, look at some aspects of their health systems, and actually did some sums and was appalled to see that they spend 50 times less on primary care per head than we do in Oxfordshire. And bear in mind that Oxfordshire spends 23% less than certain parts of the north of the country. So there's huge variation. Are the outcomes better? Is the quality better? Others in this room can answer that better than I can. But I do have a very specific interest in the money, how we commission services. Whether we get a home parliament or not, whether we have more practice-based commissioning or not, happy to answer questions on that later, but how we use taxpayers' money is going to be absolutely fundamental as we face what will be major cuts, in spite of what all those politicians say, over the next three to five years. The other reason I'm here is because I've been sitting with colleagues here present uh, trying to help set up uh, a George Centre in Oxfordshire. I fervently and passionately believe in the need for innovation to help us out of what is going to be a really, really tricky financial climate. Every day I do see patients, I am aware of inefficiencies. I'm aware that we could do things that are better evidenced. And John Bell this morning alluded to how many of the things we do now have very little or poor evidence to support them. The other angle I would like to try and encourage my colleagues to work on is how innovation can help us to decommission, to stop doing things. Um, there's an organisation <coughs> called the Oxfordshire Priorities Forum, which others here present have been to as well. In the 10 plus years I've been loosely engaged with it, we've only made one decommissioning decision. That was to stop laser treatment for hirsutism. Now, wasn't that? This is Oxfordshire, the pinnacle of academic centres for medicine and all the rest of it. And we stopped one thing. And wow, what a big one. We then promptly had to end up paying for somebody because our process behind it was so bad that they got treated anyway, which was great. But decommissioning is something we have got to look at. Um, I think I've said probably more than enough. What I've got in front of me is questions of a generic nature, questions of a specific nature that my colleagues have given to me. 
What I'm going to do now, rather than spout out their biographies, is ask each one in turn just to tell us a little bit of colour behind their biographies, which most of you need, <coughs> and to say how that links in to the innovation space, as I now believe it should be called. It's not GP speak, that. Uh, nor is the innovation agenda or open innovation or disruptive innovation. I don't mind. Anyway, I'm going to start with my left with Dr. Calypso Chakudu. Calypso, please do tell Thank the you. audience firstly about yourself Thank and then you. how it links yeah. with innovation. Right, well, I'm not, I'll get to the innovation, but by then you might have forgotten this bit. But um, um, I uh, was trained in medicine in Athens, uh, and then I did part of my surgical training in this country, in Newcastle, and then Ada Brooks, uh, Cambridge. Um, I also have a PhD in molecular biology. I worked on uh, uh, hormone refractory end stage uh, unresponsive prostate cancer. Um, and uh, then I decided I didn't want to be a surgeon, so I joined NICE about six years ago. Um, and I stayed on, and in between, I spent about a year, a year and a half, at Johns Hopkins um, looking at, um, <coughs> at, at US policy making and drug pricing policies and how the US government uh, uh, manages taxpayers' money. Um, uh, and, and there, of course, the issue of innovation and um, encouraging the private sector uh, is extremely important and has an, an impact on policy. I uh, then came back about uh, a year and a half ago, and since then I've been running, helped set up, and I've been running a small group uh, at NICE that uh, um, uh, is called NICE International. Uh, it's about four or five of us. And the idea is we respond to requests from governments uh, from other countries, mostly middle-income uh, countries, upper middle income countries, but also some poorer countries, some richer countries, <coughs> countries uh, for uh, help in setting up uh, mechanisms, the structures, the processes, but also developing the technical capacity to do what NICE does for the NHS or what they think NICE does for the NHS. Um, uh, so to use evidence uh, and values to inform healthcare resource allocation decisions and we've got a number of projects now in a number of countries and we operate uh, on a non-profit but uh, full cost recovery basis so uh, my salary is not paid by the NHS, it's paid by our uh, clients. Um, so why am I here? I guess I'm, I'm very interested in, in innovation. I've been, been interested to, to hear what people have been saying uh, earlier today about how uh, amenable the NHS is to innovative uh, ways of doing things and uh, uh, we've been trying to set this thing up for a year and a half, we've been doing a lot of work at NICE and as part of the National Health Service to um, set up a sort of consultancy if you like um, and we've, uh, we've had to, to uh, address a number of challenges and I guess uh, it'd, be, it'd be great, it's a bit of a paradox I guess on one hand what uh, our unique selling point is the NHS, this really large fairly effective, as people see from the outside, uh, healthcare system that's publicly funded and that's uh, fairly socialist in a relatively capitalist uh, country, that is the United Kingdom, um, and nice within it. Um, uh, so that, that's, that's a, a draw. But on the other hand, uh, as we try to commercialize, if you like, or make this financially sustainable, not to become rich, but to be able to run it uh, properly and professionally, we find these very characteristics of the big public sector body to be, uh, uh, to be obstacles, really, to, to, to turning, turning this into a venture that uh, is really adding value uh, both to the UK and, and abroad. So uh, I'm very interested in your uh, views and the discussion that uh, follows. Uh, 
Calypso. Thanks very much. I'm going to move along in strict line order. Professor Gray, Alistair, please will you tell us all a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so thank you very much, Steve. Okay, well, my name's Alistair Gray, and uh, my background is in economics, and uh, I've been in my current post in the university here in Oxford for, for about 10 years. So I'm the director of the Health Economics Research Centre, which is a research group within the Department of Public Health, which in turn is within the Medical Sciences Division. And uh, there is a lot of talk often in Oxford about trying to bring medical sciences and social sciences together, and I do sometimes have to remind people, well, actually, there is quite a sizable group of social scientists already in the Medical Sciences Division. Uh, we're one of them, so about 18 health economists, there actually are other uh, social scientists also working in medical science as well. <coughs> so we have, I think, a sort of slightly unusual position within the university of being social scientists, but not in the social science division of the university. Now, when I came into health economics, which was quite a long time ago, it was a very uh, broad subject. It uh, was really all aspects of the economics of health and healthcare. And people were working on an extraordinary range of different things, international comparisons of health expenditure, uh, estimating the elasticity of demand for, for healthcare goods, looking at uh, economies of scale in hospitals, uh, a really quite wide spectrum of things. But over time, particularly in the UK, but in other countries as well, health economics has been pulled very, very strongly towards evaluation and in particular towards cost-effectiveness analysis uh, of new and existing uh, innovations and interventions. And that's obviously where the, the uh, innovation theme fits in here. That's been, uh, that's had good aspects and bad aspects. Uh, I think the bad aspect is that because there has been this incredible pull towards uh, evaluation, a lot of other topics which economists should be addressing in the healthcare sector, I would say, are relatively neglected. So, for example, we know that the NHS is the largest employer in the UK, but actually there are very, very few people doing any work at all on the NHS labour force. It's a really badly neglected topic. Um, but the good thing is, because people have taken economic evaluation seriously and are actually using it in decision-making... <coughs> It's been driven very much, obviously, by the establishment of NICE as a body which is using cost-effectiveness information to make decisions about whether or not to reimburse uh, products, interventions, innovations uh, as they become available. Because of that, the methods that are being used have really come under, I think, quite intense scrutiny. And that has had a beneficial effect in driving forward the methods that economists have used in this area uh, and the way in which they try to uh, present results in a way that's intelligible to a wider audience. So I'm thinking of things like, quite difficult things like how do you actually measure and put a value on quality of life and different health states or how do you model uh, disease progression over somebody's lifetime to try and estimate the effect of avoiding a, a myocardial infarction or surviving one, what actually is the lifetime benefit of that. Uh, so the tell really, me where you found that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a back of the envelope estimate. Um, and just to sort of finish up then, I mean, I think 
we may come on to this, but two of the things I'll throw in by way of sort of provocations, if you like, which have come out of my involvement in health economics. Uh, one is that, and it partly relates to what you were saying, Steve, about the difficulty of predicting what's going to happen. I think one lesson from health economics is that prevention is not always better than cure, I, partly because it's actually extremely hard sometimes to know who's going to be affected and therefore you might finish up having to treat very large numbers of people in order to prevent what you're interested in. So uh, we may want to talk about that, but I, I think it's a, an interesting observation that the cost-effectiveness of preventive interventions is often not particularly good. The second thing, I think, is that as health economists, we've become very exposed to the experimental methods that are used in clinical science, particularly randomised trials. And I have become a kind of great fan of them, and I know they've got their limitations, but I think it's very interesting that social scientists in other areas, like development economics, educational economics, are actually beginning to look much more seriously at randomised study designs as a way of trying to minimise bias and are beginning to appreciate that a lot of the other methods that are traditionally used in social science before and after comparisons or uh, other slightly more elaborate things but they're not controlling for bias in the studies and as a result they're not getting good estimates of the effect either of policy innovations or, or other types of intervention. Alistair, thank you very much. You'll note I'm letting my dear colleagues speak quite freely, which is what I really want to encourage. And it picks up on something that John Bell didn't major on, but he alluded to in his keynote this morning, which is people and the role that people play in innovation. It doesn't come neatly packaged that you can go and buy off the shelf at Tesco's, and it's people here, but also all of you, that can make this happen. And so when you do ask questions, please be sure to tell us all who you are as well, because I think that's really the start of things that can develop and take off. Robin, would you like to just tell us a bit about yourself, please? Great, thanks. My name's Robin Norton, and I'm one of the two principal directors of the George Institute. Um, I'm an, also a professor of public health at the University of Sydney. I'm an epidemiologist by training, um, and in that training mostly, um, or, or my early part of my, my work was very much um, uh, population studies, um, descriptive studies. But in the last few years, I, I've started to get increasingly involved in the conduct of clinical trials and um, intervention studies, which is looking at the effects of, if you like, innovations or... or, or, or or what should be done to bring about change, which I think effectively is an area that we're very keen to pursue. Um, personally, I've, um, over the last few years, have been working with colleagues in intensive care, looking at what is happening in an intensive care setting to see whether current um, management practices are actually effective. And if I use an example, because I think it does lead into the decommissioning example, perhaps to give people some idea of my background, um, we've done a, some very large-scale studies looking particularly at the types of fluid that should be used in um, fluid resuscitation and intensive care. And it, as an example, we have been exploring 
What is a um, mortality that's associated with saline, effectively salt and water, versus other um, types of fluid resuscitation that are about 35 times more expensive, certainly in an Australian context. And as a result of doing those large-scale randomised controlled trials, have been able to show quite clearly that the levels of mortality associated with each are almost similar. So arguably, from a... uh, from a a cost-effectiveness perspective, why would you bother to use albumin in that setting? We then went on to look at um, particular subgroups and in particular individuals with um, traumatic brain injury and saw that, unfortunately, in those individuals who were receiving albumin, there was an increased mortality. So you could actually um, raise some issues there about whether we should decommission the use of albumin. But I won't go into that if there's any intensive intensivists in the audience. So I've had a number of experiences working in those very um, controlled um, tertiary clinical trial environments. Um, Another area that I've been involved in and is much more challenging and I think it comes back to where Peter Peart was talking, not just, we shouldn't just be focusing on on, um, um, care but the prevention area and starting to look in the area, which is my area of expertise, if you like, or where I've worked for many years, in the road traffic injuries area. And we have worked in in southern China looking at um, how do you increase the use of seatbelts amongst drivers in southern China, and so have um, implemented some social marketing campaigns and attempted to do an intervention Um, to look at whether by introducing those social marketing campaigns we're actually seeing increases in the use of seatbelts and as a consequence increases in the um, decreases in road traffic injuries. Now quite frankly we we used a controlled before after uh, design in that. Um, um, It was quite challenging. Um, We produced some effects um, and those were effects on seatbelt, increase in seatbelt use. Um, we w- didn't have enough, uh, we had involved the police, a whole range of people to do this, but didn't have enough numbers, or, or we didn't set up the study with enough numbers to actually look at road traffic injuries, which arguably is the main outcome. And um, I should say we, we sent it off to... Uh, a significant journal, which many of you in the room would know, and um, uh, effectively were told that using that study design was so poor that it wouldn't allow us to... Um, they, they, wouldn't be, they weren't interested in publishing. So I'm just flagging that because I think it raises some issues coming down the track. Um, as an institute overall, though, I think it's fair to say that we, um, we do large-scale clinical trials. Um, as I say, I think it, it's relatively easy to do those sorts of trials. But the area that we're starting to move in, and I'm trying to bring an international flavour to this as well, I know that NHS is very important, but I think we're also looking in places like China, looking, for example, about continuous improvement in care there. So, for example, we have been looking at um, um, myocardial infarction in China how it's managed. So doing studies in in 50, 75 hospitals, looking at how clinicians manage um, 
myocardial infarction, comparing that to the practice guidelines, and not surprisingly seeing um, significant gaps between what the guidelines in China say and what the evidence is. So now we're going back into developing algorithms that care, that are based on the guidelines, and in a randomised um, cluster randomised control design, trying to look at whether we can see improvements in care by using these algorithms. Um, one more example that we're doing to so again working in communities, and we're about to embark on this. Um, we've done some preliminary work showing that, as many of you know, um, salt is, is associated with increases in blood pressure. So it, we've done some preliminary work showing the use of salt substitute um, reduces blood pressure. So now we want to, to take that working in communities in primary care settings and in population settings to look at can we see um, look at the introduction of salt substitute to then see if we'll see reductions in blood pressure. And so that will be a cluster randomised controlled trial in 100 villages in northwestern China. So I just wanted to start to, to really flag some of the issues or, or the pieces of research that we've been doing, and um, I think there are challenges in it. And, um, but I, I know an issue that I've, I've flagged with, with um, Stephen that I really want to come back to and we talked about in our last issue is I've got very strong views about the necessity to do innovation um, from an ethical perspective. So we'll I come hope we'll come back to that. Back to that. Yep. Thanks very much. Uh, Professor Kajiu, would you care to uh, tell us all a little bit about yourself? Okay. Um, well, I'm also a general practitioner, as you've already alluded to, um, and I got interested in, um, in the evaluation of things after I'd done medicine and I couldn't work out how things were, how decisions were made in medicine and how, how we made decisions about whether things were effective and ended up doing my PhD in this. Um, I'm not sure I got any <coughs> decisions after doing that, but I understood the complexities a little bit more. Um, and then stayed in research for a long time and was um, interested in the fact that the research work that I was doing didn't seem to have much impact on the clinical community and vice versa, that the two groups didn't seem to talk to one another. And I then got inspired by Dave Sackett to go back into clinical medicine, retrained as a general practitioner, which I still do part-time, um, and I'm interested in trying to bridge that gap between research and practice. Um, and I, in, in, I'm interested in both innovations that people fail to use and also in the number of things that um, people do use that for which there's no evidence as well. So there's, there's a very large research practice gap in both of those. And I'm wondering, I, I need, I've got my dementia aid here. Yeah, I wonder if I can just put up one picture to just talk through a couple of examples of this. So sorry, I'm breaking the rules about no PowerPoint, but I promise you it's just this one picture. <laughs> I, I actually said to all of the guys, it must add to the quality of what you're presenting, and then you mustn't have more than five. So if we've got one, you've really done very well. Uh, but I've snuck four pictures in. So. <laughs> <laughs> you're a GP. That's right. So I want to stop with, start with the top left-hand corner, which is a picture of someone using a blood glucose meter. Um, and the story behind this is interesting. The, the, um, 
If you go back 40, 50 years ago, um, blood glucoses were measured only in hospital. You could only get it done in the clinic. And the first person to, to start measuring their blood glucose at home was a woman who was pregnant and insulin-dependent diabetic. And she managed to persuade her carer at St Thomas's in the late 1970s that she could learn how to do this at home. So she went through all the training process and she, instead of being put in hospital, which is what used to happen to insulin-dependent diabetic women, she managed to have all her care at home. So it was actually a cheaper thing to do. She was much happier and it was an innovation that worked out well for everybody. Subsequently, a lot of insulin-dependent diabetics went on this. So it became a very popular thing and it was proven in a very large trial called the DCCT trial that this intensive control actually worked better. So that's the good side, and I'm using this example because there's a, there's a sort of good side and bad side to this. It then became so popular that it, the whole idea, this innovation was extended to um, patients that weren't on insulin, the standard um, type 2 diabetic who was just taking oral um, tablets or medications. Um, and it became uh, law, basically, that you should do this. All of the guidelines said that um, um, if you're a type 2 diabetic, you should be doing this regularly at home. A lot of people didn't do that. There was non-compliance, as there usually is with patients. But most people thought it was a good thing. And then the trials started to trickle through. There were a few small trials suggesting maybe this wasn't as good as we thought. And eventually the, um, <clears throat> the, the gold standard randomised trial was done of this um, by Andrew Farmer, who's in uh, the, the primary care department here, called the DiGEM trial, a three-arm trial comparing intensive use of these machines with standard use of them, with just getting your haemoglobin A1C, which is a measure of your diabetic control, done once every three months. End result of the study? No difference between the three groups in terms of their control, but actually the groups who were on the monitors were less happy, basically. They increased uh, sort of anxiety and depression on the scales that they'd used in this, even though they were secondary outcomes. Um, so we have a distinction here. The innovation was actually good for some groups of patients, but it was extended without evidence to large groups of patients. Retur the return on investment for this is fantastic. The trial itself cost about half a million pounds to do. You think that's probably expensive. Well, the test strips that for this were costing at the time about 100 million pounds a year in the UK. Now, not, some of that's for the type 1 diabetics, of course, um, so it's not all attributable to that. But it was an incredible return on investment just for finding out whether this works. So as you can see, I'm in favour of strong evaluations, usually trials. Um, I won't talk much about the second one. Home INR monitoring is another thing where the patients were empowered to do this. It was done initially for safety because no one could believe that the patients could do this themselves. But in fact, the patients did it themselves. It was shown to be safe. Uh, and again, a systematic review out of our department showed when you pulled all of the trials together, it actually reduced all-cause mortality. So patients could not only do it as well as the clinicians could do it, but they could do it better. But they actually reduced their mortality rates because they had better control of their, of their, um, their warfarin monitoring. Now, why the difference between those two circumstances? It's because in the second one, the patients are actually doing something about the result. They were adjusting their own warfarin um, tablets. Whereas in the first one, the patients would find out that their glucoses were high but couldn't do much to control it until they got back to the doctor who said, well, let's increase your metformin or some other tablet. 
but actually that was usually based on the haemoglobin A1c anyway. So it was a matter of patients not only doing the measurement, but being able to do something about it that was critical to that second one. Um, the last two, the next one I'll just briefly mention, Swan-Gans catheters took off in the 1960s for intensive care. They became almost the standard thing. were costing about a billion dollars a year in the, in the US at least, very widely used in this country. There were calls for randomised trials, but it took 20 years before anyone listened to that call. There have now been a sequence of them all showing the same thing, no reduction in mortality, no reduction in morbidity, no reduction in length of stay, increased complications. This was a waste of time and a huge waste of money to do. And the final one I wanted to say, so all three of those, the questions were answered by randomised trials. But like Robin, I don't think randomised trials are necessary for absolutely everything and I think we should be open to other ways of evaluating things in study design. So my final story is about a kid that was brought into me as a GP who had a foreign body stuck up their nose. And I wanted to pull it out, and the nursing sister said, well, have you ever used the mother's kiss technique? Does anyone here know what the mother's kiss technique is? One, ah. <laughs> so, Clem, do you want to tell us what the mother's kiss technique is? <laughs> mother's kiss technique is you um, hold the one nostril of the child and get the mother to blow in the mouth, and it forces air up the back of the nose and forces the object out. Very clever technique. So I thought, oh, I, I'd never seen a randomised trial of this. <laughs> um, and I didn't know anything about the evidence, but it sounded sensible, so I tried it and the bead popped out. But of course, being an evidence-based person, I immediately went to PubMed to look for the randomised trials of this, and there are none. Despite that, I actually believe it works. And in fact, Ian Chalmers and I, and Peter McCulloch, Peter, wrote, a, wrote an article about this in the BMJ. We compiled about 50 things that we thought were so obvious that you didn't need a randomised trial to prove that they actually worked. We actually culled that down to about 20, I think it was, where we actually thought it was pretty clear. And the thing here is that um, it's an almost instant effect. It occurs straight away. So it's actually a massive effect in a very short time frame. And so it's just, it's obvious Whereas these other ones are unobvious. It's hard to predict that in five years' time there will be 3% fewer events in patients who do X rather than Y. You just can't see that by observing the patient in the clinic. You'll never pick that up. And the only way you can do it is the randomised trial. And but I think there's a grey zone between that that we don't understand. And what's, what is, what's a mother's kiss and what's something like um, a Swan-Gans catheter? Thank you all very much. Any immediate questions, or can I plow on with, with mine? But do stick up those hands if you want to ask questions far away. Um, Robin, I've got a fairly high-level sort of generic one to start off with you, which is why bother to evaluate innovation? That's my paraphrasing of, of the question anyway. I mean, why do we do this? I mean, just heard from Paul that uh, maybe with some things we don't need to. What's your view on that? Well... It comes down to the ethical issues that I'm talking about, and I think Paul's expounded on this really well, which is the first issue is we don't want to do harm. And, you know, unless we can go with all the best intentions in the world, as has been done up here, and unless we properly evaluate it, it may well be that we're doing harm. I think the other issue for me is, so from a patient perspective, that... Ethically, if we're going to innovate, then from a patient perspective, you want to be able to assure your patient 
that you're actually not doing them harm. So for me, ethically, you need to be able to have that sort of evidence there. I think also from a broader perspective, and where there are scarce resources, I think it does come back to ethically, should we be spending money on things that we could better spend on things that are going to make a difference? So I think, again, there's an, a real... Why should we evaluate? Because we want to improve people's health. We also <coughs> want to, for the community, make sure that we, we're using resources in the most efficient way possible. So for me, those are the two main reasons that we'd, we'd want to do that. I think there are a couple of other sort of side issues which are about if you can show that something works, it's more likely to be sustainable. Um, and if you can show that something works and, and, and publicise that in a, in a broad sense, then you can share that information with others and then other people can intervene. In, 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 the, in the way that you've suggested. So I think there are a whole lot of reasons why you evaluate, but it really comes down to we're about trying to improve people's health and we need to make sure we're, we are actually improving people's health. Calypso, Alistair, um, the questions that I've addressed to others, please do feel entirely free to, to contribute. I'll pause past some comment. I don't know if either of you want to pick up this sort of why bother and what... I mean, the question we were put at the beginning is, how do we evaluate innovation appropriately? And though I don't want to have a huge semantic discussion about the word appropriate, it is implying or implicit uh, that you don't need full-scale works for everything. What, what would you say from the economic point of view first and then maybe from the nice point of view? Well, I mean, I'd agree. You don't need it for everything, and there are, there are some areas where it's probably so obvious that something does work very well and is possibly extremely cheap that to spend a lot of money on a full-scale evaluation would not be necessary. Uh, having said that, I mean, I think the way health economics has sort of typically been used is someone has come up with an idea for an evaluation and then economists have been asked to get involved as part of the team sometimes rather reluctantly asked, but funders increasingly insist on it being there, so people are often you know, brought into studies because they have to be there. But I think that role has changed in uh, recent years, and there is now much more interest in saying, well, what, what actually is the cost-effectiveness of, of evaluating? You know, let's use the same methods to decide where we put our research effort and try to you know, use a systematic approach to deciding whether something can ever be worthwhile. Is it, you know, I've seen some things where a very small amount of modelling time is enough to make it quite clear that some things are simply non-starters. Either it's going to be so expensive or it's such a rare condition or so difficult to detect or there's some fundamental flaw in a, in a diagnostic procedure that it's, just, it's, an, it's a non-starter. Whereas other ones, even although they might be very expensive to do, are going to have very high returns. And Paul was talking about returns on investment in a trial. So that's, I think, a very good way to go. And that's something that economists have become much more interested in, using an evaluative approach not only during the, a, a formal evaluation, but before 
in order to see whether it's worthwhile doing it in the first place, during it, and afterwards, because things change, either because uh, once these innovations get out, they tend to spread to other areas where the evidence base is uh, less strong, or because uh, alternatives arise, or you know, uh, other drugs go generic, uh, a whole lot of things which might change the cost effectiveness. So, what I would say is the, the kind of role, if you like, of economic evaluation is there's a role before, during, and after. And I would guess, Calypso, that that ties into quite a bit of what the nice <coughs> view on this would be. That do absolutely, and as Alistair said, uh, I think the establishment of NICE, which was a political decision, I guess, and built on uh, a lot of work for the Conference <coughs> Collaboration or NHS R&D previous years, but it was a political decision to, to, to build it and sustain it and support it, did trigger a development in the methods that people use to um, uh, do cost-effectiveness analysis and uh, economic evaluations in general, and, and uh, fed a whole industry even of, of half economists in the various parts of this country and increasingly abroad. And that's not a bad thing. I think that's a good model. It's an example where policy can drive investment in research and capacity building, which in turn, uh, well, hopefully, it informs better decisions. Um, so I, I agree with Robin. I think it is about the ethics of ignoring opportunity cost, uh, which has a direct impact then on health outcomes. If you don't care about comparative clinical cost-effectiveness, then um, you don't care about improving health outcomes, in which case you're not doing your job as a policymaker, as a doctor, uh, or as a scientist involved in, uh, in healthcare. Any questions that anybody wants to pick up on that? Yeah, one, an observation and a question. Sure. First of all, just a bit about perils of obviousness. Um, you know, as a surgeon, I'm one of the group of people to whom things are usually pretty obvious. Um, we have a very black and white view of the world, and I think it's in that it's a necessary personal characteristic for the job we do. But it makes it difficult for us to admit that we don't know. And that means we have difficulty in equipoise. And that's one of the problems we have with doing randomized trials. And we ought to just face up to that and deal with it. But it's something that means for the wider medical community, somebody has to keep asking that question. Because it really is obvious, as you think. The question it also relates to you know, my background, first of all, in surgery, and now I'm into safety and quality research, where again we're dealing with a complex intervention. And some of the gurus of this subject, particularly in the US, go around quite openly saying, this is not open to conventional scientific methods like randomized. <coughs> And so my question to the panel is what's their view on the space of randomized trials and complex interventions and com complex innovations? Paul, you look as if you... Um, well, Peter, I have, as you know, I absolutely agree that, that <laughs> obviousness is not easy. <laughs> So with the mother's kiss technique, I think we struggled for four or five years to work out why it was obvious that this, this is actually an effective technique that didn't need a randomised trial. Um, whereas most of the other examples that I gave are actually of things that people thought were pretty obvious and, and it was pretty clear from their mechanisms that they should actually be effective. But it turns out when we properly evaluate things, most things that we think should work don't actually work the way that we expect them to. One interesting illustration of that is um, chemotherapy in cancer, where there have been a number of evaluations looking at the average increment 
in approval between the new suggested chemotherapy, which people think should work better, compared with standard chemotherapy. And if you map out all of the trials that have been done in, in particular areas, you find the average improvement is zero. In other words, it's as common for a newly suggested therapy to be worse than it is to be better. And the only way we make improvement is by subjecting over and over again the, um, the, the folk with cancers to randomised trials to find out whether we were right or not, whether we should have been in, in um, equipoise about this. And occasionally, one in ten times, you're actually discovering something that actually works and you move forward one step. So in, in, in oncology, a lot of um, folk actually get um, involved in controlled trials. Um, in a paediatric oncologist the other day was telling me that 90% of the kids they treat are actually engaged in a controlled trial. 90%. That's just incredible. I think it's the highest in any area of medicine that I know about. If anyone knows a higher one, let me know. So coming back to your one of complex interventions, Peter, I think we need to do the evaluations for the reasons that we've all talked about. I think the problem is that it's just much more difficult, as you know, with surgery, for example, to tell whether it works or quality improvement. Um, and there's the problem that the, the intervention itself evolves over time. We learn how to do it better, and so you've done your evaluation when you hadn't really got it evolved enough to evaluate. There's also an individual learning curve for a surgeon or a person who, who's the quality improvement project officer. They've got to learn how to do it. You've got to give them enough time to be able to do it. And finally, there's a problem with replication. Um, complex interventions are just harder to describe and therefore harder to repl replicate, particularly if they're adaptive. That is, you adapt exactly what your intervention is to the individual circumstances. Having said that, I still think we need to do the evaluations and the, the more formal, as you're doing with your Costa randomised trial, Robin, um, the more formally we do them, I think um, the better for at least some of them. But we can't do it too early, nor can you do it too late. There's a, there's a window in the middle <laughs> that you've got to find where, the, where it's evolved enough, but where everybody isn't already doing it. Is there another question from top right? Thank you. Um, yes, Mary, Mary Black. Um, I'm just wondering if mothers kiss easy because she nobody pays any money for it, and there's no gadget, and mother is supposed to be accused of sexually abusing the child because it's the mother, uh, and it's not the father. And is it, you know, I, I, I'm just going through that, and then I'm thinking of the areas I work for. It's very complicated, and I wish I was a surgeon like Peter. Um, I'm thinking of a country in Africa where UNICEF um, is ambitiously delivering bed nets, treat bed nets to every child, and have not yet worked out that an anthropologist has spotted that uh, if you give two nets to this to families because there's three children, no child will get a net because the priority is that senior people get nets and get beds and the the adults will get the mess and they actually need to do the whole family. And the vested interests in stating that are very hard because the UNICEF staff member wants to report back to the donor that all the bed nets are distributed and it's a wonderful job. The donor wants to be happy with UNICEF because they're, uh, it's big business, this is enormous business, and the evaluation disturbs things so they won't do it. Or another case where um, Again, it's new lines of who's in charge of what, and they're getting more blurred. So you, you know, WHO and Big Pharma have collaborated closely in one of the
of the partnerships. We were all exhausted to get involved with yesterday. Um, partnerships across business and academia and um, delivery people. Um, and they've created a rapidly produced massive amount of vaccine. And it's now controversial because there's questions about how close that relationship was. And I'm not sure that, I think the evaluation is enormously sensitive in that. I'm not even sure it's been planned in. So there's, there's this whole role coming up now for evaluation of innovation that becomes much more complicated. And we're, we're, I, I'm just interested in your views because I actually don't know the answer. I think a lot of them are complicated, but it's even more essential that they get done. I just want to use an example recently. I reviewed for a journal, so I won't say too much detail, but a major funder, um, well, I'll say it was Gates funded it, and I don't think that's breaking any confidentialities, but a major intervention involving multi, um, several thousand individuals in a low-income country which was a complex intervention, not surgery, as you say, but in communities to try to bring about some change. Now, basically, they had set up a study design, which was quite complicated in terms of the evaluation of this, which would have to be, um, and then they went through and decided it had no effect. Now, I thought, gosh, that's disappointing. As I read through the evaluation that had been undertaken, I read that they had actually stopped the study part way through for various reasons and because partly they didn't see they were getting an effect. Now, any of us who are involved in interventions know, well, you design a study because you need certain numbers of people in order to see those effects. And they'd actually stopped the study before they got enough people because they thought they weren't having an effect. Now, fundamentally, I got really upset when I read this because I thought they had taken the time of all of these people to do this study, they had put in this evaluation, and they had stopped the study before they had undertaken what they said they were going to do in their protocol. And I, I was appalled at this, and quite frankly appalled that and I don't know that Gates really knew what they were doing there. The lead person on this was a, a Gates employee. Um, and I think it really raises issues that a lot of funders, I don't believe, really understand interventions properly. And, and that's where I come back to these ethical issues there. All of these people involved in the study um, coming up with a conclusion that arguably is wrong. It may have been right but it also may have been wrong because they didn't actually follow through their research protocol that they were involved in. So I just use as an illustration to perhaps emphasise the sort of points you were raising, but fundamentally it is why doing intervention evaluations is really important. But I think coming back to the, the title of our, our session here, it's about doing them appropriately. So I think, you know, I believe there's a, there's a moral imperative to do the interventions, but there's actually a moral imperative to do the interventions right, to design the studies in the right way and then implement them and evaluate them in the way that the protocols were set up for. There was uh, implicit in what you were saying, there's a sort of how sexy is it bit with the mother's kiss, you know, it's free, it's lots of simpler things. 
versus the complexity of what you described with, with the farmer. One of the questions you raised, Calypso, was around um, how we all see uh, evaluation of innovation relative to pure research. Um, in other words, is audit and evaluation unsexy versus pure research? And I don't know if you want to comment on that. Thank you. Yeah, and I think it goes back to the sort of the evaluating complex interventions. Life is complex, and I think if uh, evaluation becomes part of uh, service delivery, then uh, method, the methodology will develop, has developed, uh, to, to, to allow evaluation to happen alongside if it's a metric of success or performance. Um, so, so it's not it's not an excuse to only evaluate things that uh, we think are easy to evaluate because we'll just end up with uh, FDA type trials, uh, placebo control with six month follow up. They're easy to do, and and then what do we get out of them? Got non inferiority, large numbers of patients, and uh, results are not necessarily that useful. And I think um, that it is important to, uh, uh, to to listen, I guess, to policymakers and service users whose perspective as to what research ought to be and what priorities ought to be may not be that well aligned to what uh, academics think or people who, who want to publish in journals and um, uh, get a high RA score and attract grants. Uh, what you said about the, the journal who, by definition, would not publish something that's not an RCD. And they said, no, no, we don't care what the, the realities of the uh, context within which this trial was run were. We just want an RCD. And if it's an irrelevant RCD, we would still publish it but we wouldn't publish something that might have policy relevance and the potential to make a true impact. So, yeah, I think there is a, uh, um, a, a negative perception and a, and a bias amongst those who hold the public funds for, for research and amongst researchers themselves as well against uh, research that uh, might be more useful. Uh, and, and I think you can get both good validity and usefulness. Um, and um, I just think that it's important that uh, the policymakers and, and service users are brought into the discussion as to what research priorities are. And this sort of purist approach to research does have an opportunity cost. And there are ethical implications of uh, going down that road of the, the purest, really good quality internal validity research that may actually be uh, useless. Does that ring any bells around it, David? I think the key thing with research is you can believe the answer. And I guess that um, as a sort of university grouping, and that's what we always go for. And our problem, I mean, Paul has flagged up quite deliberately some assessments of technology which we've done. And we went for the technologies because you can get an answer which is more reliable and you can get the paper published and an answer to what happened. Um, but when we try to do process research, our problem has always been that the context in which we've done it, which is normally with the NHS, has been fluid. They haven't actually been prepared to allow us to hold a control group for long enough for us to make the comparison. So I guess my question is, how do we actually interact with whatever healthcare environment we're working with so that actually we can do uh, an assessment, be it a trial or what have you, that we can believe it? That's a good point. That should quieten a whole lot of them, actually. I, think. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, John, you referred earlier to devices, diagnostics, etc. But the process bit is perhaps what I, as a, a representative of NHS Oxfordshire, see actually as being the current biggest challenge. 
So I am going to put it to you and say, how do we deal with that side of things? Paul? I'd just um, take up David's point of, of um, doing the good sites, but, but I'm not so sure that these are as simple as they look because it's not just the piece of kit that we're actually evaluating. All of these monitoring ones certainly are actually complex interventions in themselves, and the way that you do it is very important. Okay, so, um, which is like Mary's example of the way that you um, give out the, um, the medicated bed nets. And it matters how you actually use them and who uses them as to what effect you get. So, for example, with the home INR monitoring, in all of the trials it appears that it's only when the patients actually change their own warfarin that it's effective in reducing mortality. If the patients take the results and give them to a, a clinician to say, what should my warfarin dose be? It's only got the same impact. It's equal, basically, to, to using it in the clinic. Because um, all the patient's doing it, it's just shifting where the lab is, and the patient's not actually involved in the loop. Um, so if you, just, if you just kept it as the abstraction of home INR monitoring, um, your evaluation is only focusing on the piece of kit, but actually it's a whole complex set of things. That's the e an easy example, because you can break that up simply. But you get into more complex things like um, stroke units, for example, and that actually has dozens, if not hundreds, of components to it and gets more difficult to evaluate what a stroke unit is. Um, and I think what we don't have at the moment is good ways of, first of all, ensuring the fidelity of the intervention as delivered in the trials and then trying to make sense of the multiple trials and then, as Mary wanted, actually checking that that fidelity translates into practice. Um, for, for pills, it's been very, pretty simple. You could do, you know, sort of compliance measures, and even, even then, people wanted to invent various complex bottles and stuff to make it a bit a bit better. But it's much more more difficult when we're talking about complex interventions. And I think we're making some progress in that, but I think it's an area that's received insufficient attention compared with the placebo-controlled trial. Alistair, do you want to? Well, I mean, I the reason I was thinking a slightly sort of contrary position and the usefulness of randomised trials is because I'm trying to see this from a different perspective, which is a more social science perspective. And I think when other colleagues here are saying we're over-reliant on them, that is a clinical science view where you know the randomised trials become a sort of dominant way of doing things. But for social scientists, they're almost unheard of. I mean, if you, if you looked at the type of studies that people use, probably less than 1% would be. I mean, they really are they're novel. They're hardly used at all. So a lot of the things which, you know, you might count as a complex intervention, uh, how do you, uh, you know, is it worthwhile giving people vouchers to encourage them to attend health clinics or uh, vaccination programs, get better attendance at schools? Um, is it, you know, should we be relying on rural health workers or have more medical personnel in, in, uh, in, in larger facilities that people travel to? These are sort of classic social science questions where people formulate policy all the time and actually are evaluating these policies but usually not using any form of experimental design at all. They're, they're observational or before-after retrospective studies I'm not saying the results are always wrong, but I think you, you know, it's important to recognise that most of the policy innovations which take place are, are not evaluated in this way at all. And so what I'm trying to argue here is that, and I think there is a beginning of a sort of move towards this now, 
you know, the World Bank's been in, more interested now in using these experimental methods in some contexts, educational interventions. For, and sometimes the examples seem quite trivial. I mean, is it worthwhile having flip charts in schools? Should they all have them? Is that, does that actually help uh, it, uh, learning, for example? Uh, but actually, they're quite, it's a powerful way of seeing, does this work? Or does it not? And there are quite good examples, I think, of governments that have said, well, there actually are examples of social policy interventions which are directly relevant to people's health, which could be evaluated using much more robust methods than we're using at the moment to see whether they work. So, the, I mean, the Mexican example is cited quite often as well of uh, one of their main programs to, again, encourage uh, people to... Uh, improve attendance at schools and improve uptake of preventive health services by giving mothers uh, cash incentives. Now that was actually something that's very amenable to randomising individuals or groups of individuals uh, on a sort of a regional basis to having this or not or to having different size of cash incentive to see how effective is this and you know what size of amount should we be doing so this is where I think uh, there is a, an enormous role for this type of evaluative approach and uh, I, I fully accept that there are lots of examples in clinical science where the, the randomised trial doesn't answer every question. I, I, that's not what I'm arguing. But what I am saying is that it's, uh, we can learn quite a lot from that method in other spheres where it's not being used at all in current practice of evaluation. Eclipso, I mean, you touched uh, on a different occasion about um, uh, how the evaluation can be influenced by uh, policy makers as a whole. And where does this fit in with the link between evaluation and policy making in, in your neck of the woods? Well, <clears throat> uh, on every, every aspect, I guess. So, for instance, to give you an example, recently NICE set up a whole new process to look specifically at devices and diagnostics imaging tests, things that, uh, especially imaging tests, that don't go through a uh, EMEA or FDA type process. So uh, the evidence base is, is not similar to what you would expect for a licensed drug. Um, and there's certainly they're part of a, a, a clinical pathway um, and there's all sorts of factors, as Paul was saying, that uh, could influence how the test is used and what happens. In fact, Paul was part of the group that developed the methodology for the that's right, right? Right, for the, the evaluation. So what NICE did was uh, uh, responded to this request by government and brought together uh, very smart and, and, and people with experience in the field, developed the methods and the processes for doing that, and then put people together to sit on a committee. And then, of course, it became apparent, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's very little evidence out there of the type of evidence that NICE uses for its technology appraisals program, that, where we look mostly at new pharmaceuticals. Um, and I think that's a very good example where uh, the NHS, and, and I totally take your point that uh, providers and commissioners are not particularly on board when it comes to research, and they don't have the right incentives, why should they uh, be keen on it? Um, so the, the service users, the National Health Service, the administrators, the, the, the commissioners, um, and the researchers, the public, uh, the, those that hold public funds to commission research could come together and look at also alternative models of evaluating these things prospectively. Uh, you might not be able to randomize uh, CT scan specific part of the pathway of, uh, I don't know, traumatic head, head injury actually looked at. But 
say a patient comes into A&E and you, you might not be able to randomize them to having or not having a CT scan, but there's ways in which you can, uh, I'm sure, monitor uh, outcomes and be able to, to come to a more informed judgment than what is happening right now, things diffusing or not diffusing inappropriately. Um, so I think that's how policymakers can come together. It's a very real policy question. It's directly linked to how we spend money in the National Health Service and what we get for this money. And you've got a fantastic setting, the National Health Service, uh, commissioners, service users, the technology manufacturers who really want to know that some of these companies don't have the ability to commission large randomized trials and the incentives are not there, the money is not there. So why can't we put something together that could inform policy in this country and possibly abroad as well? That will be lovely. I've got some more questions in the front here and then to my right. Thank you. Uh, Jim Dalton uh, from a European Design Group. Um, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm not from the healthcare space, so I, my, my question to the panel, and I'll explain why I'm asking it, is whether I'm uh, best naive or, or worse an idiot. Um, and, and it's the context, I was doing some work uh, around dementia, um, uh, and we were looking at an inclusive design project to see if we could uh, get some insights from the issue of dementia and uh, how people deal with that, and then work out some design systems and services that would actually benefit society as a whole. Um, and I kept hitting brick walls within the medical profession that actually there's no evidence that, that, that any intervention really has any effect on dementia, you know, some good diet, some good exercise, so on and so forth, usual stuff. Uh, and I found this very, very frustrating because what I was trying to do was to, to come up with a model where we could have a very um, proactive, preventative uh, approach to, to dementia. So we actually changed it from post-diagnostic dementia care to proactive cognitive health and to uh, journey with a, an individual through the life journey from passing exams to school to getting a better job to parents getting ill to getting to mention oneself. And uh, what I was supposing was that actually if we could team up with someone like Nintendo, because um, it's clearly a, a market for, for brain training sort of solutions, if we could team up with someone like Nintendo and gather all the data of all the people doing brain training exercises and have that as a massive collective pool of information that we could start analysing and challenge some of these pre preconceptions that could lead, lead on to uh, maybe more form formal channels of evaluation. You see, for me, that's part of the innovation process. Um, but uh, I, I wasn't terribly successful. So am I naive or am I an idiot? Who's like to answer that one? <laughs> Paul, I think that's... I'll give it a, that's, I'm very sympathetic, <laughs> but, but I think it's an area where it needs evaluation. I think, um, in general, our, our physiology is the sort of use it or lose it, you know, and that's certainly true with everything that we know about in musculoskeletal medicine, and there, rest, rest has gone out and activity has come in now. It used to be rice was the, the formula for musculoskeletal problems, rest, ice, compression, elevation, now it's mice which is mobilisation, ice compression, elevation, which is this use-it-or-lose-it philosophy. The same may be true of the brain. What I don't know is that if you do a specific training, because you can train people in specific tasks, you know, play the piano or um, recite Latin backwards or whatever, if you train them in that, what, what general effect does it have in terms of their other functioning? In fact, it may have a negative effect on those that improves your brain function for that specific thing but doesn't actually stop you getting demented or lose any, losing any of the other functions. It's a really interesting idea that I think needs exploring, but I think the only way I could see of evaluating that, because it's not an obvious effect, it's something that requires a long-term follow-up of a small change, to me that's got to be a randomised trial. 
So I'd love to see that sort of go through a development phase. It's the sort of thing that needs fostering to get it through that development pathway and then be subjected to the full-scale evaluation before you put it out into routine um, practice and routine use. Otherwise, I think you can do damage to people by telling them that this is actually going to um, um, help with things and prevent dementia. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I guess it's more subtle than that. It's the equivalent of the NHS drinks tracker I've got on my iPhone. You know, when I first download it, it asks me for my postcode. So mm. I assume they're monitoring my results. They don't know who I am, um, but they'll get a demographic issue of, of drink consumption in the, in the UK, I guess. So, but it's, it's whether these sort of subtle things can actually be catalysts for, for, for further evaluation. Well, so the observational study may help with the with doing the randomised trial, but I'm, I'm just feeling guilty seeing Clint McPherson sitting up the back there, because this 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 sort of thing came up with hormone replacement therapy, when we observed which women had hormone replacement therapy and observed their outcomes, they actually did better. They had fewer heart attacks um, and did better in lots of ways than women who weren't taking hormone replacement therapy. And all the observational studies said it was a good thing to do. Okay. But that's a healthy volunteer effect. When eventually the big randomised trial got done, because they hadn't listened to Clem's meta-analysis, um, it showed that there was actually um, no benefit, in fact, probably harms for these things, because it was a healthy volunteer effect. It's the same as women who go along for a mammogram have half the rates of heart attacks of women who don't have a mammogram. That's got nothing to do with having a mammogram. Otherwise, men should have them. <laughs> clearly, clearly, I didn't. I need to keep moving because we've got some good questions. So the answer is you're neither an idiot nor naive. It is, it is complicated. The lady in the blue um, scarf here. Please introduce Tim, yourself. Sorry, um, Juliet Bedford. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to tell you what I am because it might sway you where you answer my question. <laughs> <laughs> um, clearly, there's lots of different models of um, evaluation. Um, most of them are largely quantitative. So I wanted to ask you, do you think there's a role for qualitative analysis and evaluation and qualitative evaluations? And if you do think there's a role, where do you think that, where's the best fit, where would qualitative analysis and evaluation most add value? Who'd like to pick that one off? Oh, I think it is more in your neck of the woods again. I think qualitative evaluation is very important uh, in two areas. Um, one that Mary alluded to earlier is looking at the way the intervention actually gets done. So what people are using it for. And another story along these lines is that um, there was a, some randomised trials done of giving women um, a tape of their consultation for when they had their first meeting with the, um, the breast cancer oncologist. Actually, it had no impact on the women, but the women loved it, and they did some qualitative evaluation to find out why, because it didn't show up on any of their measures, and discovered it's because they could give it to their husband, and their husband would listen to the tape, but they didn't want to hear the report of, the, of what was going on, but it was a way for the husband, who's usually a bit more closed off, to be able to do things. Um, so that's studying the intervention, but it's also really important for outcomes as well, and the premier example that everyone quotes on this is the OMERACT group, who have been trying to standardise measures for rheumatoid arthritis and how you measure the results of um, trials in rheumatoid arthritis. Um, the group gets together and tries to standardise this, and they've been doing this for a couple of meetings, and they eventually invited some patients in, and the patients said, this is great, but you're not measuring our number one problem. And they said, what's your number one problem? Because they always thought it was pain or function, etc., etc., 
And most clinicians um, never guess that it's actually fatigue, tiredness is the number one problem of people with rheumatoid arthritis. When you get a flare of it, it's a bit like getting the flu. You just can't do anything. And that symptom mm. for a lot of patients is actually worse than, than the, um, the pain problems. But the only way we could have discovered those two things about the way people use the intervention and what, the outcome, what outcomes are important to patients is doing the qualitative work. So we still need the trials, but that's a long time. Thank you. Maybe we've got lots. Of, is there a question in the front here? Yeah, yeah just uh, quickly. I'm going um, to the back. My name is uh, Thomas Brennan. I'm from the Institute of Biomedical Engineering. I work more on the ICT side of healthcare innovation. Um, and for a previous project we ran in South Africa, using a simple mobile application to monitor the services of community health workers, on a great difficulty in evaluating this uh, intervention, if you want to call it that, or this application, because we almost wanted to sell our results to two people to get buy-in by the medical practitioners with uh, community health workers and integrative clinics, etc. You know, having some sort of uh, cost-effectiveness or improved secondary outcomes is associated with community health workers, you know, following protocols. But from the uh, business perspective, from the process perspective, it was really just you're looking at the cost-effectiveness of, um, you know, having a field force management system that, you know, gave people who were paying for this more information about their health workers as they were traveling around. So the question is, you know, how do you incorporate almost those two selling pitches into one evaluation, or do you keep them separate? Alistair. Well, if I get into the details of the particular study, I mean, I, I, when I think about cost effectiveness, I'm typically viewing this from the point of view of a payer who would normally be a, like a public health system or a ministry of health or someone else who actually has to make a decision about whether this represents value for money. Uh, and so one can obviously take, uh, and very interesting differences ar arise here if you go from one system to another and who is paying. So in the American system, because employers are much more involved in paying for the health insurance, they're much more interested in things like time off work, which in a sort of nice type of NHS context is not really valued very much at all because employers are not directly paying for Healthcare, so um, I think the perspective matters. But um, I, I, I would come back to a, a payer perspective on the particular thing you're looking at and say, well, the, the question about cost effectiveness is ultimately a societal question. Is this a useful thing to be doing uh, with scarce resources? And to answer that question, you need a sort of robust estimate of effectiveness. Uh, uh, do you need a comprehensive estimate of the net cost? In the middle at the back, yeah, and then up to the left. And that is um, Nestle, for example, spend a lot of money on metabolomics, in their case, nutrient metabolomics. Looking at or obtaining individual metabolic profiles. Um, so, for example, they can they can generate thousands of biomarkers where usually we now only think of one or two. So the methodology is getting more complex. They're interested in looking at gut microflora and how it influences many aspects of nutrition, including improving biomarkers. They're interested in life histories and they're interested in developing products that can minimize progression to, in their case, nutritional disorders. 
So you get food and pharma kind of moving in the same direction. The food is becoming, you know, pharmacological intervention. So what I'm saying is, and this is not my area at all, that there are people who are looking at this complexity and throwing a lot of money at it. But it's not the National Health Service. It's companies like uh, Dano and like Nestle. Anybody want to pick up on? I mean, that to me is more. Was there a specific question, or is that more of an observation? Okay, thank you. There's a lady up at the back on my left. Yes, I, I have a comment. Could you introduce yourself, please? Thank you. I mean, the, the first part of that is about sort of retrospective analysis and evaluation. I don't know, I mean, Alistair, do you want to... Well, I mean, I, it that? sounds fascinating. I mean, I, I guess the question partly is that, that yes, you look at a way a service is being provided in, di in different settings and it's being done differently, diff different types of uh, healthcare workers, different organisational settings. Um, I suppose the first question I would ask is, does the variation matter either in terms of the cost of doing it or the effectiveness of doing it and if it doesn't really matter all that much they're all costing roughly the same and the outcome is roughly the same I'm not sure there's necessarily a, 
research question, but if there are variations either in the costliness of it or in the, the uh, effectiveness, then I think what one then has to do is to try to get people to start thinking about whether there is a right and a wrong way of doing it or to engender some uncertainty amongst the people delivering it, perhaps by drawing attention to the variety of ways that it's being done. And if they're all costing different amounts and have a different effect, they can't all be correct. And therefore, I think engendering in the group of providers some uncertainty about what the best way is of doing it and then getting people to think about uh, a slightly more experimental study where you might randomise people to different uh, ways of delivering it might be a good way forward and that's certainly been the experience of a number of other studies I've been involved in where you kind of start off with, where there is a lot of variation but everybody thinks what they're doing is right and it's only by actually pointing out that the, the People are in a spectrum of provision uh, and it's all being done very differently in different centres uh, that you begin to generate uh, agreement that it would be you know, worthwhile trying to do a proper evaluation. It's a very complicated question and I, I appreciate you've only had a partial answer to that. I've got two more questions, one the lady in the front here and first the gentleman to my right here. Uh, and then the surgery will be over and lunch will begin. <laughs> so to my right first of all. Hi, my name is uh, Ami Banerjee. I, I work as a cardiology trainer in the hospital. I put myself towards Peter's end of the spectrum, looking at things as black and white. But I, I read Malcolm Gladwell's book recently, Tipping Point, and he talks about innovation, obviously, as innovators, early adopters, and then you've got early and late majority of people who take up the innovation. And I was thinking of how this gets applied or what I see happening on the wards. And Paul's example of the, of the glucometer, where you had this evidence that, that the glucometer works in insulin-dependent diabetics, and then clinicians, GPs thought, well, it should work in people who don't take insulin in their diabetic, and let's try it. And, and so you've got the translation of an evaluation of types of trials, change practice very quickly, and then it... it later on emerged that this was not correct. So there's, there's many examples of that in my own field, for example, in use of aspirin, um, where we've had to really kind of who gets aspirin and who doesn't um, with regard to stents and bypass surgery. So my question is, how, when does the evaluation cycle finish? And what we don't talk about much is the communication of the results of evaluation. Perhaps Calypso is best place to work it nice to answer that, um, that once the evaluation is done, once the trial is done, it's published, or you do a report, what are the obstacles in changing practice in the evaluation? That's a massive one. For, <laughs> you know, four minutes to one. It's like the patient who comes and says, actually, there are nine other things I want to argue. <laughs> Quickly, Calypso, can you pick up that second part? Um, well, I don't know whether it's certainly nice ought to be uh, uh, trying to communicate and, uh, when we are trying, and it's extremely difficult. But uh, there's a whole process of interacting with, with patient groups from the beginning, defining the clinical question and the relevant outcomes, as uh, Paul was talking about, to, to trying to communicate the final uh, decision and link it to the evidence base and then make the uh, actual guidance relevant and, and readable and understandable by, by others. But... Uh, 
it's certainly really tough, and I'm not sure how you evaluate how well you're doing that and whether it matters, so I don't know. On the first point, yeah. um, I think it's, it's a very difficult question. I'm not sure the evaluation ever ends. Um, but the first phase of it is to ask whether it works in, in some group of patients at least. So it's not because nine out of ten things don't work. You want to get rid of those and find the thing that does. But most things don't work completely. John Bell was pointing out this morning you know, that often things will have a 30% reduction. Well, that's saying actually it doesn't work in 70% of people. And, and trying to identify who it does and doesn't work in, I think, is a big challenge for the next century to try and get it up to the well as close to 100% as we can. So I think that, that really the first trial is only the first phase. We'll usually have further work to go to identify the right and wrong subgroups always. If I can perhaps follow up on the last point, which is the translation of research into practice, um, what little work that I'm familiar with is it's still an area that we need to know a lot more about. And I used the example before of the study that we've done comparing um, saline versus albumin fluid resuscitation. What the, the group I've been working with have subsequently gone back to try to look at what, what effect that those research findings which were published in the New England Journal of Medicine had on practice subsequently. And they've done a couple of things to do this, and one of which was, was just to, to, to look at what has been happening um, in, in terms of the sale of albumin over time. Interestingly, they saw a huge drop in the sale of albumin immediately when the major Cochrane review came out before our trial, which showed increase in mortality. It had a huge impact at the time. We then subsequently did the randomised controlled trial, which showed no difference, and it made no difference in the sales as far as we could see. So interesting observation there. But subsequently, they've, they've started to do some qualitative research to try to talk with clinicians about well, what's happening with practice. And so it, it's using those sorts of methodologies now to try and understand what are the things that have been driving the clinicians in terms of how they respond to, to that sort of evidence. But arguably, that's a whole new area that we need to do more work on because it isn't just about providing the evidence from very large randomised controlled trials. Um, there are other things that clearly make a difference. Sure, to our last question. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, uh, you'll have to. Some of the people who are on the panel now were in the audience in, in, in the last session, and so excuse me for repetitiveness, but the issue of Emily um, monitoring evaluation came up in the last session. Um, um, my name's Andrea Coleman. I, I'm a co-founder of Riders for Health. We, our focus is running and managing vehicles in health delivery in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, it, it touches on several of the comments that have been made here. But really this is about what is absolutely obvious and what people, the purists, as it were, will and will not accept. And it's absolutely clear to us, we make sure that vehicles run predictably and reliably and cost-effectively so healthcare reaches rural communities rather than breaking and, you know, all that. Um, but for us, that is absolutely clear that it makes a difference in terms of people getting healthcare that they wouldn't have got otherwise and get, they get it predictably and reliably. But 
the, the purists in monitoring evaluation say that we, running vehicles in healthcare, cannot claim any kind of benefit in terms of impact in terms of healthcare at all. And that we, you know, don't even mention what, you know, that we've said, oh, well, we have a big impact on malaria and cholera. Don't say that because that undermines your credibility. So, you know, it, it's just an example of some of the things that are sort of, if you'll excuse me saying so, bleeding obvious, and yet people say, you can't claim it. So it, it, it's just a comment, much more than a, than a question. It, it very cleverly underlines the complexity of some of the components of evaluation. Um, I'd like to thank you all very much indeed for contributing to the discussion. I'm afraid we've uh, reached the one o'clock lunchtime hour, and as in general practice, I do like to get my lunch. So thank you all very much indeed. And thank you.